Welcome to Unity Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. In today's episode, Senior Pastor Heath Bauer continues in a series, A Life That Pleases God. Faith, as described in Hebrews 11.1, is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. We are on a journey to investigate what a life that lives by faith looks like. Today we discover the kind of faith Enoch had in Faith Walks with God. If you are in Ashland, Tri-State area, we would love to see you. More information on how you can connect with us at Unity will follow today's talk. Here is Heath with today's message, Faith Walks with God. Chapter 5, a little bit in Genesis 6 as well. But we're beginning in Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11, as you know, in our course of study, we begun with Hebrews 11, 1 in defining faith. And verses 2 and through the rest of the chapter is describing faith. So we define faith, and then the whole rest of the chapter is describing it. Because it's not just enough to tell us what faith is. Because you and I as Christians would go, oh yeah, I have faith. Oh yeah, I live that way. And what God is saying, no, maybe you don't fully understand what it looks like to live by faith. Just coming to church on a Sunday morning is not living necessarily by faith. Living by faith looks like something. And so what God is going to do is he's going to give us a list of people in, the, in Hebrews chapter 11. He's going to point out that they live by faith. And often he will highlight something particular about that person that he wants us to emulate. Later on it will say, consider the outcome of their faith and imitate their faith. Okay, so God wants us to look at these examples, and what I think it's interesting is after we get done defining faith, the first description of faith that God wants us to look at in the life of a believer is from a man that maybe you don't know terribly well named Enoch. And there's a reason we don't, you don't know a whole lot about him is because there's frankly not a lot written about him. And yet I find that really interesting. Though there is very little biblical content on the life of Enoch, yet when God wants to describe what faith looks like, when God wants to hold somebody up as an example of faith and say, imitate their faith, Enoch is the first example that God gives. What is it that Enoch did that was so impressive to God that God decided to highlight it as an example of faith, the very first example of faith in a human form, and then to put it in Hebrews 11 for all time and eternity. Well, for that, we're going to look at Hebrews 11 and Genesis 6. We're going to see from uh, Genesis 5, rather. We're going to see from Genesis 5 that what he did was he walked with God. And there's certain things that are particular to that. First, I'm going to read our, our text here this morning, Hebrews chapter 11, verses 5 through 6. It says, By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. You're going to see that that is a reference to Genesis 5. Now, before he was taken up, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And so in Hebrews 11:5, we have the example of Enoch given to us. And what God highlights is the Genesis 5 story. He wants us to go back and look. What did he do that so pleased God that God commended him? And then interestingly, in Hebrews 11:6, then, it points out how you and I, like Enoch, can walk with God. In in verse 6, it talks about wanting to please God. It talks about drawing near to God, believing that he exists, and seeking the reward of God by seeking him. 
And so we're going to flesh that out a little bit this morning. Do you walk with God? Most Christians would say we do. But do you walk with God like Enoch walked with God? And so the rest of this is going to be fleshing out really a lot of Hebrews 11, 5 through 6. But first, let's go back to Genesis 5 because God quotes that and wants us to look back there. We're going to see, number one, that Enoch walked with God when others didn't. And that's really what makes it by faith. It's not so much that when you walk with God here at church that you're walking by faith. I mean, it's easy to say, I love Jesus, raise your hands and worship in prayer in the middle of a service where literally everybody else in the room just about believes in Jesus also. That's why they're here. Easy to walk by faith, right? Or walk right now in the, in the path of God, to sing his worship, to study his word, to say, I love Jesus. I doubt anybody here is going to mock you for your belief in God. What made it faith is that Enoch took his faith out into the real world and he lived in a real world where people scorned God. Enoch lived in a wicked day. Let's look at Genesis chapter 5, verse 18. And let's begin with our favorite portions of the Bible, the genealogical sections. Are you ready? When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived, after he fathered Enoch, 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God, after he fathered Methuselah, 300 years, and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not. For God took him. Now, if you were reading through the Bible in a year and you chanced upon Genesis 5, chances are you started going into skim mode. You know what I mean? You get to those sections of the Bible and you read it like the stock market section of the newspaper. Eh, all these codes and numbers, irrelevant to my life. I'm going to go to something that's significant to me, like the funny pages. And I'm going to intellectually stimulate myself with Garfield. And that's, that's kind of how we do sometimes with the these portions of scripture, when we get to Genesis 5 and we see these genealogies, we're just wondering, is there really anything in there for me? But you're going to see that there's actually some important information that we draw about the life of Enoch and what made it a life of faith by looking at these genealogies. By the way, God includes genealogies for a reason. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, all scripture is profitable. And so these are not wasted words on the page. First of all, we can look back at the Bible and see that the Bible is a verifiable book. God is inviting us, come and see, see that these things are true. But secondly, we learn a little bit about the context in which Enoch lived. As we read through these genealogies, we discover that many of the people who died in the flood were alive at the time that Enoch lived. In fact, we also see that Enoch fathered a very famous man named Methuselah. Those of you who like Bible trivia, what's the one thing we know about Methuselah? Oldest man to ever live. You guys are good at trivia. Uh, he's the oldest man to ever live. And so, but looking at this here, this genealogy, we realize that many of the people who died in the flood were alive in Enoch's day. Why is that important for us to know? It gives us context for why it was by faith that Enoch walked with God in that day. Were the people who lived in the days of the flood, were they a, a righteous generation? Were these good people? Were these Sunday school teachers? These were not the people that you wanted to be around. In fact, it's the most wicked period of time in earth's history up to this point. In fact, in Genesis 6, 5 through 7, we read that the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth and every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. Some teachers saying, it sounds like my fifth grade class. <laughs> 
The Lord regretted, he says, that he made man on earth, and it grieved him to his heart. And the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and the birds of the heaven, for I am sorry that I made them. How wicked were the people living in the days of Noah? They're so wicked that up to this point, even in our history today, we're nowhere near the wickedness of Noah's day. In fact, it won't get that wicked again until the very end of the age when it will return to what are the days of Noah. Even Rome in its decadence and its sinfulness and its wickedness, it's well known for being a wicked generation, evil, cruel, violent, immoral, still had nothing on Noah's day. And yet those people who were alive in Noah's day, the wickedest generation to ever live, many of them were alive at the time of Enoch. And so Enoch lived in a dark and wicked day. That is really what makes it by faith. I'm willing to stand with God, walk with God, worship God in the midst of a dark and perverse generation. And the truth is God calls all of us to live in that way, doesn't he? That we're gonna walk with God, we're gonna do it in a wicked generation. And yet at that time, Enoch decided, you know what? I'm going to walk with God even though nobody else is. And God, it says God commended him. He praised Enoch for walking by faith, choosing to walk with God when nobody else would walk with you. Is that going to cost Enoch anything? Are people going to look down on Enoch for walking with God? Oh, Mr. Holier than thou, Mr. Righteous one. Promise you, Enoch was scorned. Servant is not greater than his master, right? Jesus said, they scorn Jesus, they're going to scorn us. And they scorn people a long time ago, especially in the wickedness of Enoch's day. And to stand with God, to be able to walk with God during this day, indicated just the depth of character that Enoch possessed. You know, there's a few books that I remember reading back in my literature classes in, in junior high and high school. One of those books was called To Kill a Mockingbird. Never read that. It, came, it was published uh, around 1960, just before the height of the American Civil Rights Movement. And it highlights the observations of a young girl named Jem who's growing up under her father, Atticus Finch. And they lived in the deep, deep south in uh, Maycomb, uh, Alabama. And what she noticed is, is that this is an unrighteous world that we live in, and yet she has this righteous father who's willing to stand in the gap and to walk with people at a time when it's unpopular. And so he was a lawyer by trade, but he was a poor lawyer, and we all know why, is because he took the hard cases. He took the cases nobody wanted, the ones you can't win, the pro bono cases. And so he was not a wealthy man. In fact, his wife had died earlier. And so this is a man going through extreme hardship and trial, and yet he holds resiliently with character and he decides to represent a particular man named Tom Robinson. It was a black man accused of raping a white woman. And in the deep south, everybody knew that there was no way Atticus Finch was going to win this trial. But he took it anyway. He chose to align himself with Tom Robinson because he knew the evidence was, would support him, that Tom Robinson was an innocent man. And he, was, he decided that he was going to persevere and stick with him, even though he knew there was no possible chance of success. And because of his willingness to align with him, it cost Atticus Finch a lot, didn't it? Cost him his reputation. In the legal community, he was scorned, even seen as betraying the legal community. Uh, Atticus lost friends over this. It even affected his family, little young Jim and the, you know, their, their family, the kids in the neighborhood wouldn't, weren't allowed to play with his kids anymore because he was lining himself up with a person who was just routinely hated by the rest of the community. And at one point in time, a man even tried to kill his daughter with a switchblade. 
can't believe they had us read that in like junior high. But you know, it, that's where it was though. Atticus Finch was willing to walk with and stand with people in a difficult and dark day. And that is why we look at Atticus Finch as one of the most noble characters in all of literature. Because he's willing to walk with a man to, because it is right. He's willing to walk in justice and holiness when nobody else around him would. And that is how Enoch walked with God. He walked with God in a wicked day when nobody else would, when it was going to cost him. And that's how we all walk with God. Uh, Noah is described as walking with God. We just read about the days of Noah. God didn't make it easy on him. He was going to have to walk with God by faith. Abram, father of a great nation, right? He walked with God, the Bible says. And was Abram's day a, a righteous generation? It was so evil, God made him move. You're going to get out of this land. We're going to do a do-over. We're going to start over with a new nation that follows me. More than that, Joshua 24.2 reminds us that, that uh, Abram's father was actually involved in paganism and idolatry. He grew up in a household that didn't honor God, who were idolaters of heart, who maybe hated God. Of such were some of us. You might be the only person in your household that follows God. And yet, can God pluck us out? and set us on a path to walk with him in righteousness, even when we live in a wicked day? Well, the Bible also calls you and I to walk with God. Many, I can give you a number of different scriptures, but I'm going to give you Micah 6, 8 right here. The Bible says, He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you. I love it when God just spells it right out of there. What do you want from my life, Lord? What is it that you're going to commend? What, you, what is it that I'm going to do in my life that's going to please you? It's like when your teachers, I loved it when the teachers would give us a study guide. They didn't just give you books and say, I hope you guess to study the right things. They're like, if you study this, you're gonna do well. And so this is the rubric by which your life is gonna be measured, God says. This is, uh, this is what I require of you, oh man. Don't you kind of wanna figure out what God is going to measure our life by? He says, what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, that you do right, my people, but you don't just do right because it's the right thing to do. You're going to do it from the heart. You're to love kindness. You from the heart are going to be a transformed person. And then what's the last thing Micah says? To walk humbly with your God. The Bible says the Lord requires that of us. God doesn't require us to make a lot of money. God doesn't require us to be successful in ministry. As far as success, human success goes, human success in ministry is often just this. Do you have a lot of people coming? Do they give a lot? God doesn't require us to have big ministries either. What God does require of each one of us is that we walk humbly with our God. So we better figure out what this walking looks like. And to do that, we're going to look at the life of Enoch. Number two, we're going to see that walking with God desires the very presence of God. Hebrews 11.6 talks about how... Uh, how he draws near to God. He wants to be in the presence of God. He wants to think about God. He wants to be near God in as much as he can. He just longs for the presence of God. In Genesis 5, 22, it says, Enoch walked with God, and then he was not, for God took him. Now, God uses this term walking. It's a human thing that we can understand that clarifies a spiritual truth. Does God walk places? Now, instantly we'll say, yeah, God walked with Adam in the garden. But does God need to walk? I mean, if you read, if you read John 4, 24, the Bible says God is a spirit. 
God doesn't need legs and arms and things like you and I have. He's a spirit. He's different than you and I. And so to walk with God, God uses that term because we understand what it means in our daily life. If I choose to walk with you, it means something. Sort of like uh, back at the Bible college I was at, when you walked with somebody alone from class to class, everybody began talking about you. <laughs> that means something when you walk with them. You're fellowshipping with them. You're trying to get to know them. Chances are they're already talking about marriage. I mean, it didn't take long in Bible college. You got, they called it Faith Baptist Bridal College for a reason. Everybody's going there looking for a mate. And so when you walk with something, it communicates something that you accept them, that they accept you. It, it indicates that these are two people trying to communicate together. There's a reason we didn't walk with all y'all from class to the dining hall and why we sat by ourselves in the lunchroom. We desire intimate communication. We want to be close to one another. It's an exclusive relationship that we have with one another. Well, Enoch walked with God in such a way like this that God did something unusual for him. It says God took him. This is just a word that means to transport to move. Enoch was walking with God one day, and then God took him. There's no other example in the Bible anywhere near this. Even Elijah, when he went to heaven, I mean, he went out with a, in a blaze of glory, literally, in a chariot of fire. So the only two people who never died in the Bible was Enoch and Elijah. But Enoch is the only one that it just says he was walking with God, and then he wasn't there. God transported him. Why would God just instantly transport this man over all the other people on earth? I believe it's because Enoch so longed for the presence of God. I mean, Hebrews 11.6 says he was drawing near to God. He was drawing near to God in such a unique and intimate way. He so longed for the presence of God that God granted him his wish. You want to be with me so bad? I will give you the desire of your heart. Clearly, there's nobody else in history who quite walked with God like that. Not even David, who was a man after God's own heart. Enoch so longed for the presence of God that God granted him his wish. And that's going to be like us as believers someday, that we so long for God right here. And that's why you're here at church. We're worshiping God. We're like a little child, you know, when they're off and they're playing with their games and their toys and their Legos. But eventually, that little toddler, once in a while, he'll come up to mom and dad, won't he? And they'll just reach their hands up to the sky. And you all know what that means. That's sign language for a kid saying, lift me up, you know, pick me up. And why? Because I want to be close to you. Just, they just reach up instinctively and we draw them near. We bring them close to our face so that we can hug them, we can kiss them, we can, we can speak to them, we can enjoy them. And they'll just, they will just relax into that relationship. In a very real sense, Enoch spent his entire life lifting up his hands to God. I think that's why a lot of times lifting up our hands to God is instinctive when we pray. We're reaching up to him. God, I just want to be in your presence. Many times people in their worship culture, they will reach up to God as they, as they worship because they just so long to be in God's presence. Like a little child speaking to their father, I want to be in your presence. And God he saw this in the heart and the life of Enoch, and he granted him that wish. And I think this is really what God wants us to take away from this example of Enoch. It's to live a lifestyle of seeking and desiring nearness to God, to draw near, as Hebrews 11:6 6 says, that we draw near to God in the way that Enoch did. Well, how do we draw near to God? 
I mean, there's a lot of different ways, and we'll talk about it in a little bit, but I think one of the ways that we draw near to God is the same way that we draw near to any loved one who's passed away. They're no longer here, but we still desire to have a sense in which we're near to them. What might you do? You might go to their grave. Um, maybe you, if, if it's a parent, you might go back home to the home where you grew up, and you'll visit with the, the living mother or father who's still there. Maybe you'll visit with their family, and you just kind of see the things that pertain to your father or see the things that pertain to your mother who passed on, and you spend time with their family. And I think in a very real sense, that's what we do with, with God here in coming to church when we draw near to God, certainly a component of that is to draw near to the family of God. After all, this is the bride of Christ. You draw near to God by, by drawing near to him in church. You come and you worship together and you, you, you sing, you give, and you listen to the word of God and you spend time engaging one another in relationship. It's like a spiritual family reunion. Friends, I'm hoping that in time we can change our perspective of what church is. It's not just a building with services that we attend because it's the right thing to do and then we go home. I hope someday you'll look at the church as not an organization but an organism. It's a living, living being. God calls it the body of Christ. And that when you come here, you desire to engage God through his people, that you desire to give God through your giving to the church, that you, you just, you're, all of these things are expressions of your desire for, your, for God himself. By the way, that's why we don't just watch church online. I mean, unless you got in a car accident or you're infirmed in some way, you just cannot be here. Watching church is never a complete replacement for being in church itself. And those of you who are shut-ins, our heart goes out to you, you know exactly what we're talking about. If you had the choice, many of you watching from home, if you're infirmed, you would give anything to be right back here in the presence of God's spiritual family, drawing near to God with your brothers and sisters in this family reunion. A pa famous pastor named Dane Ortland once said, staying at home to watch church is like staying home from a friend's wedding and to watch the ceremony virtually, keeping your wedding gift with you, your presence and solidarity and love and hugs, eye contact and singing are needed. It's not just about passively receiving something. It's about being an embodied part of the celebration and the whole event is diminished by your absence. And you have a gift to give. That's what church is. It is a drawing near to God collectively as we draw near to him with his people. Number three, walking with God allows God to speak with us, or to us, rather. You know, part of the drawing near experience, when you walk with somebody, you intend to communicate typically with them, don't you? You know, there's a certain route that my wife and I will take around our house. We have the short route when we're feeling tired. We have the long route when we have something to talk about. Uh, one time, my wife and I had had, an, uh, let's just say, a discussion that we didn't see eye to eye on. I know y'all don't have that, but sometimes we do. And we started out the first part of our journey in silence. Is that awkward? When you just, you're walking with somebody, but you're not saying a word? You know, one of the most important things that we can give a person is their attention, to allow them to speak freely to us. And one of the most destructive things we can do is to withdraw that and to ignore them. In a, in, a, in a very real sense, when we don't pay attention to God such that we allow him to speak to us and we speak back to him, it's the ignoring of God. That we are, we, how, can we truly say rightfully that we're walking with God if we are not allowing him to speak to us? Well, that begs the question, how does God speak to us? 
Are we supposed to listen for a voice in our head? Is that how God speaks to us today? Nobody wants to speak to that because there's a lot of folks who would say yes. Friends, can I tell you, in the Bible, there's nowhere in the Bible where God encourages us to listen to the voice in our head. What I do read is Jeremiah 17, 9, which says the heart, that little voice inside of you, is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. What you're going to notice is if you trust the voice in your head as the voice of God, that voice is, all, is never going to disagree with you. My Bible disagrees with me all the time and is always realigning me, recalibrating me to what is true. And so we can't just trust the voice in our head because the voice in our head sometimes is informed by Scripture and leads us to do good things. And sometimes that voice in our head is motivated by the flesh to do fleshly things. I've had people tell me, God told me to leave my wife. Really? She hadn't done anything that led to a biblical divorce, but God told him. Did he? Or is that your flesh informing you and you're confusing the voice in your head is to be the voice of God? What is the only true voice of God that we have in this world? It's the Word of God. The only, that's why, by the way, again, I say this all the time, but there's a reason for it. I never say the words, God told me, unless I'm quoting Scripture, because I have no truthful way to say that. Unless I'm a prophet of God claiming divine revelation and absolute authority, I can't say those words God told me. God doesn't tell us to allow him to speak to us simply through listening to a voice in our heart. What he tells us to is to get into the Word, like 1 Peter 2.2 2 says. Those of you who are brand new believers, what's the first thing you need to do? You need to eat. Like a baby, they come out of the womb crying, begging for milk. First thing they try to do is get that baby to their mother so they can feed. And God says, that's the way it is with the believer. You need the words of God to speak to you if you're going to walk with God. He says, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. He says, you truly say you're a believer, show it. You should be hungry. You should be hungry for a relationship with God that causes you to seek out truth from his word. You say, I've walked with God a long time. I've read the Bible many times. I don't need to do it anymore. Hang on. What does Hebrews 5.14 say? But solid food is for the mature. If you're truly a mature believer, it's not that you don't need church. It's not that you don't need to read your Bible anymore. It's that you're reading more and more deep things from the scriptures. You're, you're diving deeper into your relationship with God. And so walking with someone means listening to them. And the only way that we can listen to God truly is through his word. And so I think that we can rightfully say, if you are not consistently reading the word of God, you are not consistently walking with God. How do you walk with, somebody, how do you walk with God if you're not listening to him? If, you, if you're not allowing him to speak into your heart and life, God speaks to us through the word. And if we truly love God, will we not revere his words? The weekend that I came here to preach in view of a call here at Unity Baptist Church, something very unfortunate in my life happened. My dad died of COVID the night before I had to preach in view of a call. And my dad was very dear to me. You know, no dad is perfect, but there's, I have some really great memories of my dad who would speak into my life. He was a continual encourager to me in my life. And I don't know what I'm going to do when I have to give up my current phone. It's like, five-year-old phone by now. It's, it's getting old, and it's about time I probably should update, but I don't want to, and I'll tell you why. It's because on that phone, I still have texts from my father. Those of you who have lost a father and mother, have you, you been in that position? What do you do with that phone? You don't want to get rid of that phone because there's those texts, and there are times where I'll be discouraged in my heart and life, and I want to hear the encouragement of my father, and you know what I do? I go back to that cell phone, and I will look up 
these old texts I got from my dad. And they will say things like, Heath, I'm proud of you and the man you become. And Heath, I, I just want to encourage you. And, and he'll say, Heath, your life has value because it's connected to God. And I hear these words and I look at them and it'll just bring a tear to my eyes. I see that because I am, even though my dad is not with me right now, he still exists, but he's somewhere where I'm not. I can still connect to the words of my father and in a very real sense say that this is how my father feels about me. When we love God, is it not the same way when we read his word? It's not something we do as just a disciplined devotion in the morning. I do it because it's the right thing to do and good Christians do it. When I read the Bible, I understand that as a text from my Lord who died for me and went to prepare a place for me. And this is my one way to truly hear from him. That will, looking at it this way will transform how you see the Bible, that it is a love letter to you it's not simply a manual. It's not an instruction manual. None of you sit around reading the instruction manual for your car. We all get cars. They have instruction manuals. You don't pull those out and read them for fun. You go to it if you have to, if you really need something. And sometimes that's how we approach the Bible. It's an instruction manual. Eh, I don't go to the Bible unless I have to. Huh, my life is tanking. My wife is going to leave me. I'm, I'm struggling in my life. There's got to be something here. God, what do I do? You know, the Chaldeans who are besieging you shall live and have his life as a prize of war. Not sure what to do with that, God. And then we put the Bible away as if it's irrelevant to our life. This is a love letter to us. This is God's text to us after he died and went to, rose again and went to another place that he's inviting us to. This is him speaking to us from the other side. Also, walking with God implies that we allow God to speak with us. That's what it means when when he draws near to God, he wants God to speak to him, but in a good conversation, don't you have a time where you're also speaking back to them? You ever have people, you start a conversation with them, and, it's, and instead of, a good conversation is like a tennis match. You hit, and then they hit, right? And you hit, and they hit. Some people, it's like playing tennis with a serving machine, and they're just lobbing balls continually. Like if you weren't there, they would still have the same glorious conversation without you. A good conversation is back and forth. God talks to you and you talk back to him and God talks to you and you talk back to him. So as we read God's word, we're continually in a spirit of prayer with the Lord. <clears throat> I think that's, uh, that's really what he's referring to when he talks about in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18. He says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. What's God's will for my life? We talk about that. It's always, who, do, who should I marry? What job should I do? Where should I live? What clothes should I wear today? You know, that's God's will to us. But God's, uh, worry less about those little things. If you worry just about what God has already said he wants you to do, you'll do well in life. And what God says his will for us in 1 Thessalonians 5 is, that we will pray without ceasing. Now, some of you may feel like you're not praying without ceasing right now because you're sitting and listening to me. But when he's talking about praying without ceasing, clearly it doesn't mean that we are just continually on our knees. We never eat, sleep, or anything. It means that we are in a persistent state where we're inviting the presence of God in our life. We're in continual communication with God. That prayer for us is more than just a little time in the morning with my quiet time with the Lord, and then I walk away and never talk to God again until it comes time for lunch. God bless this Big Mac that I'm about to eat. May it somehow nourish my body. You know, and, then, and that's the extent of my prayer life. It's some scripted thing I do with God in the morning, and then I pray at my intervals at the meals because it's the right thing to do. Praying without ceasing means you're always aware of the presence of God in your life, and you're reaching out to him even in the little things. 
can't go to sleep at night. What do you do? You pray. You talk to God. You're sitting in a waiting room for a loved one who's having surgery. What do you do? You're praying to God. Maybe you're the one being operated on. You're about to be operated on in surgery, and you're, you're wearing that embarrassing gown. They're about to knock you out. What are you doing? You are praying to God. And it can be in just little things. Your, your child maybe is, you know, in their, what they call the terrible twos, and you're struggling as a mother. What do you do? You pray to God. Give me wisdom. Know how to raise this child. That's what it means to, do, to be praying without ceasing. You're constantly, it's just an unbroken line of communication between you and God all throughout the day where you're inviting God into your life and what you're doing. That's what you do with a friend when you walk with them. You're walking with them. You're just talking back and forth about all manner of life. And so that's what we do with God. We invite him into our daily life and our conversations and just how we live. Number five, walking with God aligns us to his will. If you love me, Jesus says, you will keep my commandments. So if we truly love God, we desire to draw near to him. We desire the commendation of God in our life, like we saw in Enoch's life. It means that we desire that God is going to be pleased with our life. And so we modify what we say. We modify how we live to live and speak and act and serve God in a way that we know is going to be pleasing to him. That's what Galatians 5 is talking about when it says that we are to walk in the Spirit. It's another way of saying walking with God because the Spirit is God, Jesus is God, the Father is God. Okay, so walking in the Spirit is walking with God. It means that we are walking in concert with the cadence and rhythm that the Spirit is, that we are living as the Spirit does. And when we do that, you see love, joy, and peace flow freely out of our life as it does the life of God. I think that's also why in Galatians 5 and verse 25, it says that we are to make a conscious effort to keep in step with the Spirit that the Spirit is walking a certain obedient pace of life, and we've got to make sure that our life matches the pattern and the cadence of the Holy Spirit, that we're not going ahead of Him and we're not going behind Him. We do that in real life, don't we, when you walk with somebody? My natural pace of walking, my family knows, is, is a fairly fast pace. Uh, my girls like to joke, and they call it the mission walk. Like, I'm going somewhere, and I'm going to get something done. You know? So my natural pace, without even thinking, just my life is geared in such a way, I'm a fast walker. And if I don't pay attention to what I'm doing, I will leave my wife in the dust, and I have. And I've learned by experience she doesn't like that. And so when you walk with somebody, you're not walking ahead of them at your speed. You're not walking behind them at your speed. To walk with somebody, it's a conscious effort to make your steps and cadence match the person you're walking with. That's often why you'll see me holding my wife's hand when we walk. It's not just because I'm a hopeless romantic. It's because it actually forces me to not walk ahead of her. You know, if I feel myself dragging her behind, I'm like, okay, Heath, slow it down a little bit. You know, make your, your cadence match hers. And in a very real sense, this is what we do with God that we find ourselves walking ahead of God. Maybe we're doing things we shouldn't do, or we're living in sin, or we're, we're going beyond God, we're, or we're, we're going too slow. There's things God wants us to be doing that we're not doing. God wants us to pick up the pace. To hold hands with God means to walk in step with him to make sure that our life matches his and the cadence of God in walking in obedience. When we desire to align our steps with God's, we can say that we're walking with him because we're going where God wants us to go. Amos 3.3 says, how can two walk together except they've agreed to meet? They've agreed to meet and to go to a certain place together. And so they, they've, they're intending to walk together in the same cadence, going the same direction. 
When we walk with God, it means we're going the same way God wants to go, and that is a life of obedience. Hebrews 11.5 says, By faith Enoch was taken up, he should not see death. And it says, Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. His whole goal in his life was just to please God. That's why he lived so obediently. It's not because he wanted to just live up to a standard just because it's the right thing to do. He actually, there was a person that he was trying to please. When Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 10, he says, we pray this way, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That when we walk with God to live obediently to his word, again, it's not just slavish obedience to a list of rules and rights and wrongs. There's a relationship we're trying to please, much like you do with your wife, men. There's things that you change about your life so that you can be happy. <laughs> you, don't, you don't leave your clothes on the floor like you used to in the college dorm. You don't leave your whiskers on the sink. Amen, ladies? Yeah. You don't leave those on there. She didn't like that. You know, you change your life, you change your habits. When you get married, men, you don't keep trying to live the single life. You ever seen that? Guys, they get married and they, they still think they're single. You know, and you have what they call the video game widow. He's playing Call of Duty all night long and he's not with his family. You know, you change your life to be with her and to, you want to live in such a way as to please her. First Corinthians 7 talks about that. When a man is single, he seeks how to please the Lord. When he gets married, he seeks how to please his wife. Okay, so you, your goal in living this way is not just because you think it's a right way of living simply, but it's because there's a person you're trying to please. And that's how Enoch walked with God. He wanted the commendation of God. He wanted God to look at his life and say, well done. And so there's a person that is driving that obedience. And we walk with God every day like this so as to live in a pleasing way. Number six, walking with God seeks the reward of God. And so in Hebrews eleven six, 6, our final comments about Enoch walking with God are we've read that without faith, it's impossible to please him. We've seen that Enoch has wanted to draw near to God, talking to him, with him, desiring the presence of God. We must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Walking with God means that we desire the reward of God. To walk with God means we desire the reward of God. But notice here in Hebrews eleven six, what is it exactly that he's seeking? It says he rewards those who seek him. And so this is not a reward apart from God, that we seek God because of something God can give me. And people do that sometimes. They come to church, they start a relationship with God because they think God's gonna fix something about their life. Maybe if I draw near to God, he's gonna fix my family. <clears throat> he's gonna fix my marriage. He's gonna fix my kids. He's gonna fix my ruined life with my in-laws. He's gonna fix my ruined career. Maybe God will get my life back on track. And so I wanna use God to improve my earthly life. Friends, that's what false, Christian, or false religions do. That's what Buddhism does. That's what every other atheistic religion does. It's what uh, all these non-Christian religions do. You manipulate a God in idolatry. You offer him a sacrifice so that he will do something good for you. You go into these, I've been to a lot of these Buddhist and Tibetan Buddhist temples, and that's what they all are. I've asked my tour guide, hey, what are these different giant gold statues and this and this? And well, you pray to this and you do this and you offer this offering, burn this candle, you put money in a crack in a wall to certain ones of these these enlightened lamas, these deities, these spirit beings. And then if you do that, they will give you, there's, here's the shrine to happiness. You want to be happy, you give him money. You want to be, uh, you want to get a lot of money, you know, you go to this 
shrine and you offer up money and candles so that this deity will make you wealthy. There was always a lot of money in that shrine. Everybody wants to be wealthy. You know, you, you, maybe you're sick and you want to be healed. You'd go to this shrine and you put money in the wall. You light a candle so that maybe this deity will heal you. And so this is how non-Christians approach spirit beings. It's that I want to get something from you to improve my life apart from you. It's the prayer of a prodigal. Remember, he goes to his father, give me my inheritance now. In other words, I wish you were dead because then I'd at least have the money and that's really all I want from you is what you can give me. And so God, give me this money. And so he goes away to a far, uh, far land and he wastefully spends it all on himself. He thinks the purpose of his life is just to invest in his own personal comfort and fun and enjoyment. And it wasn't until he repented and came to his senses that he finally returned to his father in repentance and realized that the whole time all he really needed to be happy in life was a relationship with his father. That's really the message of Hebrews 6. What is the reward that we're seeking from God? Is it the streets of gold? Is it the pearly gates? Is it just to be reunited with an earthly family member? All dogs go to heaven to be reunited with my schnauzer someday in eternity. Is that really the reward that we're seeking as believers? The reward of God is God. He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And we realize that at the end of our life, really the reward wasn't the, wasn't the eternity God promised us. In fact, it was simply the relationship that we've built with God along the way. Those of you who had to suffer through Shakespeare in high school, maybe you're familiar with the story The Merchant of Venice. Not to be confused with The Merchant of Venus, a B-list sci-fi movie. The Merchant of Venice. And you have this guy named Bassanio, and he's this, he's sort of just like this young, not, you can't really say successful. He was a young, uh, philandering, kind of wasteful nobleman. And he realized that con- to continue this lifestyle of just investing into myself, I got to marry a young, rich heiress. And so he begins to look around for an heiress, somebody who can improve his standard of living. He's seeking a relationship with somebody to improve his quality of life. And so he gets his friend Antonio, who begins to introduce him to this woman named Portia, who is exactly that, this, this young heiress. And so he begins to establish a relationship under false pretenses, just with the intention of receiving a gift from her, her inheritance. And along the way, what he discovers is that this woman, Portia, is actually a woman of tremendous character and nobility. She's witty, she's fun, she's charming. She's, she's got character. And so what he finds is that along the way in pursuing her for this other thing over here, just for her inheritance, he discovers that he actually loves the person. And then he eventually marries her and discovers that the real reward of being with Portia is Portia. Sure, all these other things come along with it, but I don't even care anymore because the real reward in my life is to be with this wonderful woman. And for a lot of Christians, that's how we are with God. Some of us, we start out in our relationship with God because we just want something from him. God, save me from hell. That's really all I want from you. I don't want to pursue a relationship with you. As long as I know I'm not going to hell, that's really the only reason I'm connecting with you. I want some kind of inheritance from you. I want to know that I'm going to heaven. But really, God, that's all I want from you. And that's the prayer of the prodigal. I don't want you, God, but I do want what you give to me. Or maybe we continue in our relationship that way. We pursue God and we come to church just because we want something from God. I want you to improve my life. I want you to improve my relationships. I want you to help me pay my bills. I want you to fix my marriage. 
And then somewhere along the way, we begin to learn about the, the God of the Bible. We learn about who Jesus is and the richness and the beauty of his character, that he is compassionate, that he is just, that he is loving. And the nobility of Jesus' character leads us to fall in love with the God that maybe initially we were pursuing for other reasons. And then at the end of our life, we realize that the true reward of my existence isn't the inheritance that God promises us, though that does come. But we discover in the end that the reward of God is God. When that becomes your understanding and your heartbeat, friends, I can say that you are truly walking with God. You're walking, willing to walk with God when no others are. You're willing to walk with God in uh, drawing near to him. You just want to be in his presence. You're walking with God, allowing him to talk to you. You're walking with God when you speak back to him in prayer. And you're walking with God when you're seeking the reward of God. And all you want from life, honestly, is just to be with him. And like Enoch, we're lifting up our hands to the sky saying, God, like David said, who, and I, who have I in heaven but you? There's, if there was nothing else in heaven but God, David would have been content. Who have I in heaven but you? And what have I on earth besides you? When we can say that sincerely from our heart, friends, we're walking with God. Let's close in prayer. Our Lord, we thank you today that as we study your word, as we observe this life of Enoch, so little is written about this fellow. And yet, God, you have chosen to list him at the very top of the examples of faith for us to follow. There is something about the way that he walked with you that you want us to learn from. You want us to, like Enoch, to seek the pleasure of God and his commendation. You want us to walk with you in such a way that we're, we long daily to draw near for you to speak with us, for us to speak with you, just to walk with you like Adam and Eve in the cool of the garden, just to, just to spend time with you. You want us to come to a place in our walk with you where we're no longer pursuing you for what you can provide our life, but you want us to walk with you because you want us to want you. Lord, help us today to get our eyes off of just trying to use spirituality and religion to improve our earthly life and help us to find joy just in the knowledge of you. Help us to see and desire as our reward for eternity, simply the presence of God. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. From all of us here at Unity, we would like to thank you for spending time with us today. If you would like to know how to surrender your life to Christ, or if you'd like to share a response, visit us at www.unitybaptistashland.com. We would love the opportunity to help you in your next steps. You can also connect with us on Facebook at UBC Ashland. If you like what we're doing, don't forget to like and subscribe and share our podcast. Until next time, may we do as Psalm 119.10 says, With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments.